two things that came out of the study this week were two phrases, and I don't know how easy you are to say these two phrases, but for me, these two phrases are very hard to say, uh, and so if you're with me on this, you can amen, you can high-five if your wife or spouse is next to you and they do it, then you can just elbow them and be like, that's you, okay? However that works, but here's two things I have a hard time saying. One, I don't know, and just leaving it there. I have no idea how to fix that. I have no idea what to do about that. I don't, I don't know. See, and all of you are waiting for the response. All of you are waiting for like, but you need to fix it. And I'm like, don't know. So that's, that's one. You may have a really hard time saying. The other one is um, I, I'm powerless to, to do anything with it. I have no power within me, within me to fix that problem. Most of us are on the other spectrum, myself included, and we like the phrases of, I got this, or we'll fake something, or we'll make something up to make the person feel like we know what we're talking about, or we'll say, you know what, I'm going to muscle through this, I'm going to discipline myself through it, I'm going to grind my teeth and push my way through it, even if it injures everybody else around me and causes more damage in the process, I'm willing to buckle in and do this thing that you've called me to do. I've got the power to do it. When in wisdom, maybe it's not the wisest thing to do. And I think both those things are part of our culture, right? I think it's just part of being uh, in our culture and being American. It's just that thing that's part of us. And it's, it's unique to probably the, the, the West as far as the culture. Because if you look at cultures around the world, not everybody is that way. We're going to be looking at that this morning and what was the culture in Corinth. But before we do that, I thought it was interesting that if you look at the two cultures, let's say the West, um, the, uh, us in the States, and then if you look in the East, right, it's very, very different. In the West, we, we see equality as very, very important, whereas in the East, it's not about equality. It's about hierarchy. And so if you were to go overseas and you try to put your culture into the, the East, it, they're going to not understand what you mean by equality. No, no, no. There's hierarchy, and hierarchy is very important. And they would see that equality almost seems oppressive where we would see hierarchy as disrespectful. Does that make sense? So, so you've got two different cultures battling each other out. And then you've got task-focused of the West, right? And, and we're very, very task-focused, which in the East, they would look at the West and they'd say, you guys are so task-focused. That just seems so unkind. And then they're event-focused, which seems inconsiderate to my schedule, right? There are events, like the things that happen in their culture, everybody's tied to it. It doesn't matter what you believe. You are tied to that event. And you're like, well, my calendar doesn't line up with that. It doesn't matter. It's, it's culture. So, and there's a couple other things. Honesty, we praise here in the West, whereas the East, they, they're far more into harmony. Independence in the West, uh, patronage in the, in the East, efficiency, hospitality. And then the, probably the biggest one we're going to get into today, and that is this. We in America are probably one of the most guilt-based societies around. Like our culture is just built on guilt. Uh, it, it's just part of how we're made. And it says in the guilt-based society, it seems kind of weird and it seems uh, there should be no shame. And then in the shame-based, which is the opposite of us, they look at us and they'd say, it just doesn't quite work because in a shame-based society... It's a whole different world. We're going to get into that in just a second because I think that's part of Corinthian's story as well. But this morning you can see the vast differences even from, from, an, from the East and West culture. And, and it's very, very different and it impacts just about everything they do. And so this week, as we're looking into Corinthians, that's kind of some backstory even to them. They had cultures that were going on in this church that were very, very different. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to simply identify what the two lines of thoughts were in 1 Corinthians this morning. What were the dividing lines? And they're going to see how both were mistaken. Uh, but we won't go too far into the uh, 
argument because we need to kind of unpack in the next couple weeks together. But here's your main thought, main idea for the morning, and that is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We have a hard time with I don't knows. We have a hard time with I am powerless to do anything about it. And yet the Bible says that is probably one of the best places to be is when you don't know and when you are helpless. Because he says in 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We're going to unpack that and see what that's about. It's a mindset, right? It's the hills we die on that can get us in trouble. Some of us, it's the hills we die on. Some of it's the lack of hills we die on can get us in trouble. But regardless... This passage in 18 to 25 this morning, the hills that they were willing to die on cost them some division within the church. We're going to unpack that together. Before we do that, let me go ahead and pray that as we open up God's word together, that he would use this to uh, illumine our hearts with the spirit that he would teach us this morning, and he would show us what he has for us as we unpack it. So let me pray for us as we jump in. Father, I thank you that... um, Even when we are powerless, you are not. God, even when we don't know what to do, you already have a plan. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter from Paul written to this church thousands of years ago and yet still applicable today. We pray, God, for your wisdom. We pray for your strength, things that only you can give. May we not trust in ourselves this morning. May I not trust in myself this morning, but trust in your word to do the transformation. It's in your powerful and wise name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's jump right in. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 18 is setting up the argument from here until the end of chapter 4, okay? And so this first line is very, very important because what Paul does in this first line in 18 is gives you two different camps, two different sides of the church. So so let's just say for sake of division... makes sense in church, um, that this side is, is the side that says we are all about wisdom, right? And you don't like that side because that side, they're not wise, right? They're not smart, right? And so you've already, we've already done this. This is good. So, and so as you leave today, you're just kind of like, man, I don't like them. They're just not as smart as we are. So this is the wise side. You're like, wisdom is powerful. Wisdom is all we need. You guys on this side, you don't understand them because the wisdom and the philosophy and talking in circles just sounds stupid, right? I mean, I don't want to talk in circles. I want power. I want proof. I want miracles. I want the things that I can see, touch, feel. And so this side, you guys are on this side saying, man, we want power. We want to see God come. And and we are also not only a power culture, you guys are an honor culture. So you guys reside in this thing of honor, and so shame is really good for you. You're really good at it, okay? And so you can, you can see this side, and when they leave, you can figure out all the shame things you want to do to this side, okay? And this side, as you leave, you're going to figure out all the wise things you're going to tell them about how dumb their shame thing is, okay? That's, what, that's what's happening in the church, okay? So here's the two camps. One camp is the Gentiles, and these guys believe that the wis- wisdom is the most important thing in the world, And that sounds kind of weird, but it was so true back then. The culture spoke that wisdom was it. Wisdom was the pinnacle. We're going to talk about that in a second. This side, the Jewish side, said, no, it's about the power of God to those who are being saved. So 
Paul, in this verse 18, identifies both. It is folly to those who are perishing, and it is power of God, not anything other than that. And so he, he, he gives them proof of this from verse 18. He gives them proof by quoting Isaiah 29, 14. But he paraphrases Isaiah 24, 19, because Isaiah 24, 19, he says it as, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The actual reading says this, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul took it a full way of, of far more negative than, than God here in Isaiah because Isaiah is saying, hey, I'm going to work for you. There's going to be wonders upon wonders and it's going to be amazing. Paul's like, yeah, but it's, it's the thwarting of wisdom that we're going to see here. And context is very important because if you were to read 14, you'd read this. If you were to read 13, though, of Isaiah 29, 13, which Paul knew, as he gave this quote, he knows what he's doing. 13 says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a command taught by men. Their command is based in tradition. It's not built out of a relationship with me. They don't care about me. They care about traditions. They care about their laws. They care about singing the right songs and doing the right things in church and and not acting up in church and doing the right things. And that's what they care about. And because of that, I will show them it's not about traditions. It's not about rules. It's about the power and the wisdom of God. Paul is setting up these two camps and was well aware of how each camp thought. If you take a look at the two thought lines, you'll see that maybe you personally could probably fall possibly into one of the, or two of those, those camps. And so he starts now, he says, those are the two camps. Let me start attacking the first camp in verse 20. And so in verse 20 and 21, he begins to go after the first camp. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or the stupidity. It's a fun word to use in scripture. It's actually a really strong word for stupidity. The folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul gives three different people here. He gives the wise. And he says all of these people in the church were claiming to be wise. And so they would say, we're right, you're wrong. That was the first jab. The second jab was at the Jewish people particularly because he jabs at what's called a scribe. A scribe would be somebody in the Jewish faith who would be able to write down and, and document every single piece of Scripture. They'd memorize Scripture. They'd be the theologians of the day. They'd be your professors at the highest university in Christianity or in Jew- Judaism at this point. And it was the scribes who you would go to. If you needed to find out what that law meant or the minutia of that law, you would go to the scribe and they'd be able to tell you. They were the wisest of the wise in the Jewish camp. And he says, where's the scribe? And it could have been, interesting enough in Corinthian church, there could have been a scribe in that church. Many believe there probably was one of the scribes, one of those guys that's sitting in the church. like, where's the scribe? Can you imagine that? The guy's like, where's the scribe? And the scribe's like, oh, it's not that thing. You know what I mean? Like, oh, he doesn't need my help. He's actually pulling me down. Yeah, that's what this is. Where is the scribe? And then he says, where is the debater of this age? And now he goes after the Greeks. Where's the great philosophers? Who's the great philosopher in the room? And again, probably the guy's like, Okay, I saw the scribe thing went. That's not going to do that, right? He, he knows that Paul is coming after both camps. And so he says, where's the scribe? Where's the debater? And then he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
So all you people on this side who are into the wisdom side of things, God didn't come because you figured him out. That make sense? God didn't come because you were able to figure out the best theology and the best hermeneutic and the best way to, to find out who God was. I didn't come for the wise. He says, that's not what I did. For God, in his wisdom, knew that the world would try and reason their way to him. And it was God's wisdom that was something he, he says, in God's wisdom, he pleased him to make the defining state of Christianity not something super hard to figure out. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? God says, I could, I could, I could save you any way possible. I could have made it the hardest thing in the world to send my son into this world, and you'd figure out how to get there. I could have made you trace, and, he, and, and we can, prophecy after prophecy and lineage after lineage and, and this event and that event. I could have done anything I wanted to do to make you come to Jesus, but I made this thing so crazy that it sounds foolish to the outside world. It sounds stupid to those who are wise, and that's on purpose. And so he's sticking it to team wisdom. Team wisdom, camp number one, says wisdom is God and the cross is foolish. That's what, that's what team wisdom was. That God only is found through the wisest and that the cross is foolish. There's a right way and a wrong way, and that's it. They would be very stoic. This, was, this would have been a culture... Uh, at the time of Corinth, that would have been permeating the outside world of the church. So everybody outside the church, like if you lived in the town of Corinth, they would have believed in this thing called wisdom. It was a cultural thought pattern, a way of doing life. It was called Stoicism. If you look it up in the history books, you'll see that Stoicism was this actual philosophy of life that permeated the culture of Paul's day. Let me give you a quick definition. Stoicism, in, in, in the dictionary, says this. It's an ancient Greek school of philosophy founded at Athens by Zeno of Sidium, the school taught that virtue, the highest good, is based on knowledge. The wise live in harmony with the divine reason, also identified with fate and providence, that that governs nature, and they are indifferent to the vicissitudes, which is a fun word, of fortune and to pleasure and to pain. So stoicism was basically this thing that says everything in this world can be figured out and we are to avoid any kind of pleasure and we are to avoid any kind of pain. They'd be great at parties, wouldn't they? Like they just don't want to have any fun and they want to avoid any kind of pain and everything makes sense and everything is logical. It's like, and I can pick on them because my father-in-law are one. It's like, invention, it's like inviting a bunch of engineers to your house and be like, hey guys, I got this problem with my sink. You want to figure it out? Yes. And they're like five different ways to figure out your sink. And you're like, this is the best party. Yay. Right? Stoicism was all about right and wrong. And this is the right way to do it. And we can figure it out if we sit. And if we sit in a room and we philosophize enough and we hear everybody's point of view. Oh, that's very deep. That's very wise. Tell me, how did you reach that conclusion? Well, you see, what I did was I grabbed from arts and I grabbed from stoics and I grabbed from. And that's how I arrived. And you work in these circles. And, and that was kind of the parties. And you're kind of like, well, that sounds lame. And it probably was. But for most of the point, the culture was all about figuring out and wisdom was the key thing. The four big pillars of Stoicism are these. One, wisdom. Got it. Number two, temperance or self-control. So they would have loved me. <laughs> like they, anybody who just rambles, anybody who just kind of lets words come out of their mouth without thinking, um, they, they would not know what to do with them. They'd be like, that guy is 
the worst. I mean, just everything about him I don't like because there is no self-control. Everything is wisdom. Everything is self-control. Everything is justice and courage, facing daily challenges with clarity and integrity. And some of you may relate to this, and you're like, yes, that's how you do life. Rules, black and white. That's how you do life. You don't worry about anything else. It's about self-control. And, and I'll have plenty of fun when I can self-discipline myself enough to have fun. What? It works. Trust me. I'm an, I got this, right? And, and that's kind of how they operated. The two pillars of control would say this. Some things are up to us. Other things are not up to us. And it's a mindset that said we are left to fate. They, say, they would say, we are on our own, so the best thing we can do is discipline ourselves with restraint, accept our fates, and have zero fun doing it. Discipline is far more important than fun or passion. They would love a regimented person. They would love somebody who's degreed, and they would hate anybody outside of that world. So Camp One would say wisdom was the highest on the list. Apollos, we just talked about him, he would have been loved in this church because that guy was fluent and could speak and he was majestic in how he talked and they would love this guy because he had the degrees, he could work his way through those. But others outside would not. So they would say, yeah, we'd like Team Apollos. They would also have a hard time with Team Jesus. Why would they have a hard time with Jesus? They'd have a hard time with Jesus because Jesus didn't have degrees. Jesus didn't come with all this flowing wisdom. Jesus came and was among the least of them. They would have a hard time with the cross. What kind of all-knowing, wise God would set his plan in place for rescuing humanity by allowing his son to become human and die? What kind of wise God would do something so foolish? A better, wiser plan explains through layers and logic of reason and, reason and other things why they deserve to follow Christ. If, if someone can't step up to the degree of knowledge that they have, let them go. The cross, that's, that's so foolish. We're going to get into that next week of how weird and foolish that sounded to people of the cross. The cross is for the lowly. The cross is for those who aren't learned. The cross is for those who, who really can't come to our level of wisdom. And so God says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom in 21a, it pleased him through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. John Piper says it like this, God wisely rejects the possibility of salvation by human intellect and wisdom and knowledge. God wisely, that's a fun word, rejects the possibility of salvation by human intellect and wisdom and knowledge. You can't earn your degrees to him. And it pleased him to do that. We're going to find out more next week in that. So that's team one. Team two was this team that hovered in this idea of power and honor. Honor and power are God, and, and the cross is weak and shameful. We don't, the, the Jewish people would have a really hard time accepting the cross because the cross was shameful to them. It was not anything of honor or power. It was the worst thing you could do, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he continues now in 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Why is this? Because the Jewish people were an honor-based society. And again, we've talked about this at the beginning, but just to kind of get you into what's happening in the context, because it's important to understand what their thoughts were, let's go into what it, is a, what it means to live in a shame-based society. We don't live in that in this culture. We're removed from it, but here are a few unspoken rules in an honor-based society such as Asia or even the Middle East, right? That's why, that's why conflict is always happening between the East and the West. Is, there's this culture difference. 
So in the West, we would not have this, but in the East, here's some things that they would say in a shame-based culture. It's kind of how they grow up. Number one, family is everything. They would say, you know what? It doesn't matter what your status. Family is everything, and name and reputation are everything. So if you, if you were driving down the road, and this is true. I've heard this even recently through some new stuff that um, you, you get stopped by a police officer, right? And, and they want to search your car. They want to do some things and you're, you're not sure how it's going to go. And you could really, this could go badly. And many people would say, all I needed to do was give them my last name. And they were like, oh, okay, go ahead. Right? Not many of us live in that today. Like if that came up and they said, do you know who I am? They'd be like, No. <laughs> right? But the, but the name and the family meant everything. And so if you were of a name in the East, even today, family is very important and it has rights and privileges. Uh, number two, social capital fixes everything. Okay? In other words, it's not just about who you know, it's about what you know, and it's about who's in power at that time. And so social capital fixes everything. So that's why everybody's trying to climb the ladder in a shame-based society. Number, number, uh, number three, I thought was very interesting. Aggression restores honor. Does this make sense to us? A lot of us are like, uh, aren't we supposed to be kind and caring? But in the East, especially the Middle East, you would understand that in a shame-based society, aggression restores honor. Does that make sense as far why we're in so many conflicts in the Middle East? <laughs> because aggression restores honor. Not just taking it on the chin, but fighting back restores honor in a shame-based society. And last but not least, words define everything. Again, can you see why we are in conflict right now? In a shame-based society, when aggression restores everything and words define everything, not your actions, but your words, it's a problem. And so for this Jewish people, they would say, one, family is everything. We are from Abraham, thank you very much. We have descended from Jacob, and that is our ancestry. Family is everything. And Jesus came against family and against Abraham, and he knocked the Jews for it all the time. He's like, you think you're Abraham's seed, but you are not. That's, that's a punch in the face. Social capital fixes everything. We're going to take over Rome, and we're going to be in power again. Didn't happen. Aggression restores honor. That's how Christ came into the crucifixion itself, and words define everything, and God and Jesus always was working to redefine their words. That's kind of the culture they were in. And last but not least, this is one of my favorites in a culture of the East, which I think we need to bring back here, and that is that food conveys honor. Ah, that's good, right? And, and having food and having meals together shows that you love somebody. So people of Community Bible Church, if you honor me, if you love me, have me over to eat your food. That's, that's what I'm saying this morning. That has nothing to do biblically, but it sounds like a good thing. So honor is all about who you feed and about who you have over for meals. It was part of this thing. And, and shame and honor were part of the second camp. And then if that's not enough about culture, let's go to Deuteronomy 21. It says this about the crucifixion itself. Deuteronomy 21 and 23 says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Crucifixions were for those who were against or cursed by God. Does that make sense? So that would have been in the Jewish culture for Jesus Christ to be on a cross would have been the most shameful thing to admit. God doesn't work that way. That's why in a Jewish culture, you don't see a bunch of people wearing crosses around their necks, right? 
It's a shameful thing. Well, I went to Moody Bible Institute. It's a Christian bubble, and uh, it, it was all about Christianity. And, and obviously, it was a really good school, and, and I loved it. But there was many, many times where Jewish people would, who had come to faith were on, were, were on campus, and, and they would see all these crosses everywhere, and they're like, do you know, again, a Jewish society, how repulsive that image is? Because in the, in the Old Testament, even the cross itself was shameful, and it was not to be uh, seen as anything but that. Jewish people would have seen the cross as the most disgusting thing to do to a man. Rome itself tells the story of Galileus Julius Caesar, who was on trial for some act that he did against Rome while he was in power, and he enlisted one of the best attorneys that Rome had to offer at that point to act in his defense. And this defender in this court of law, his name was Cicero, he died actually very close to when this letter was written, but Cicero himself said in this man's defense for Rome, because they were going to crucify this man, for going, against the, the, for going against Rome, but he was a Roman citizen. So here's even how Rome saw the cross. He said in the defense of this man, the very word cross should be removed, not only, forth, not only from a person of a Roman citizen, but from his thought, his eyes, his ears. For it is not only the occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but a liability to them, the expectation, nay, the mere mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. He said the cross is not even to be thought about, looked on, because it's so disgusting and so repulsive. From another commentator, there was graffiti found on a wall uh, in, the, in the ancient times. And the, and the graffiti looks like this. The, the, the left is, is the actual graffiti, and, and the right is actually the blown up of the graffiti that was on the wall at the time. And the words underneath it says this, Alexmenius worships his God. They saw Christianity as this most ridiculous, shameful thing that he says this Christian guy is worshiping his God and this God has the head of a donkey, right? Because it was just stupid. Nobody believes this. They mocked it. They made fun of it. It was not part of their world. It was graffiti to them. The cross would hardly be a necklace. It would hardly be an Instagram post or it would hardly fit on a mug. Not like today. It was the most disgusting thing to be. Not as disgusting as that, that's probably one of the most disgusting things I've seen on a mug. But the cross, would, to them, would have been secondary. Just, can you take that off? Thank you. Almost. I was close. Okay. It was beneath them. It was a stumbling block. It was the most disgusting thing they could have seen. It's still in my head. Uh, it was the most disgusting thing that would have been part of the Jewish culture, and that was them. It was beneath them. It was a stumbling block. Yet God, in all his wisdom, sends Christ down. And verse 23 and 24 says this, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is telling both groups here, God does not play by your rules. You cannot put God in a box and expect him to stay put. The moral of the story today is this, that God's foolish and weak act of the cross creates an all-access gospel. Isn't that crazy? That God's foolish, in their minds, 
shameful in their minds act of putting his son on a cross levels the playing field in Corinth and in our lives today so that we all have access to the gospel. God uses the powerless and the shameful to gain his glory. God levels the playing field of man's ability at the cross and asks us to come in weakness and in shame, which takes us all the way back to the beginning of saying, I don't know and I can't fix it, is the perfect place for you to be in your, in your walk with Jesus Christ. Can I just say, if you are at that place where you're just like, I don't know, I can't figure him out, I have no idea what he's doing, great. I, I can't fix it on my own, I have no power to do it, I've called my group and they don't know what to do, and I've talked to the church and they're not really sure what to do, what do I do, how do I fix it? Great. Because God says at the cross, we exchange all of our wisdom and all of our power and we give it to him and we say, only at the cross is it a level playing field. A great reminder for us that he knows our own personal stumbling blocks and yet pursues us. Here's where I want to close with this morning. Community, may we rejoice in a God who will not stay put and will not surrender to our wisest thing and will not bow to our most powerful request of him. He is outside of us, and to put him in a box is going to work against you, not against him him. The church put God in a box and said, it's the wise that find him. It's the most powerful, the most honorable to find him. And Christ looks at this church and goes, guess what? You're both wrong because I work in a way that is way beyond either of you. May we celebrate that we will never on this side of eternity, and I say this um, with with some, some caveats, but we will never on this side of eternity figure out God. We will never on this side of eternity be able to understand and contemplate all that he is. So all the questions your kids are going to ask you and all the questions you're going to receive about Christianity and all the things you want to try and figure out and nail down and have a specific answer for, great, do that. But at the end of the day, you may find yourself saying, I don't know. Joel, why, why, why doesn't God just get rid of sin and just make everything better? Why, why do we have to live in a broken world? I don't know, but I know God gets glory from it some way, somehow. God, well, how about injustice? Why does this guy go free and this guy doesn't? And isn't God on his throne working? And isn't he in control of all these things? Absolutely he is. Then why does it make sense? Why does it make sense? Why is justice not there? Why is life not fair? I don't know. I don't know. But God in his wisdom is already on the throne, already working. He eradicates any distinction of wisdom, any degrees and PhDs, GEDs. They don't matter. He eradicates any distinction on income level. He eradicates any distinction on race or class warfare. The cross is open to the children and the scholars alike because it was his pleasure to do it this way, to confuse the wisest. This is crazy. He did it to confuse the wisest and to repulse the highest and the purest, to use our weaknesses, not just our strengths. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, same author, different letter, says this, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is one of my favorite passages. Therefore, this is Paul, therefore I will not boast all more gladly, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. If God works through weakness, then have at it. If God works through weak and, 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 and people who don't have it all together, then amen, let's go, right? 
If God works in the weak and his power is made there, then why on earth would we try and puff ourselves up to be something that we're not? Weaknesses are what God loves. This morning, maybe that's what you need to hear. God's foolishness is greater than your wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than your best. And how amazingly comforting that is that he levels the playing field. And he says, you all get to come. And when you are at your weakest and when you are at your most vulnerable, praise God. The thing you boast about isn't the fact that I've been in my Bible 20 times this week. Good. Awesome. Nothing wrong with that. I love that. You should probably do 30. That'd be great. Right? But God says, I also love those that come and say, you know what? This week, I've had zero desire to be in the Bible. Zero. I know I should. I know I want to, but I just had nothing. I, I, I feel like I can't even open the thing sometimes. I feel like I can't even attend to church. I don't, I'm not there. And God says, come. I got you. I, I want to work through that weakness. I want to work in a way that only I can. This morning, here's what I hope you get out of all of this, that you get verse 1, chapter 1, verse 25, that for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And because of that, we are able to come and be changed by this God. This morning, as we close out, I just want to, um, we're going to end with, with singing some, some choruses together as we go out, more proclamations than they are anything else. But I also wanted to add in a reading from Job chapter 12, verses 13 to 25, and that'll be part of the worship here in a little bit. Because in Job chapter 12, verses 13 to 25, God speaks directly to Job, and Job has some response. And that response is summed up in this verse 25, that Christ is made perfect in my weakness. That God works better in my weakness. That God works better in my foolishness. And next week, we're going to see how crazy foolish the cross sounds and how God was pleased to do so. Let me pray for you as we close out. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, what a great reminder for me this week. You know I have a very hard time with I don't know and I can't fix it. And so, God, I thank you for being a God who levels the playing field and says, you all come. All of you get part of this because what the wise can't understand and what the shame are repulsed by, I took joy in. In sending my son to the cross to die on your behalf, that you may come as you are to this place and accept grace and mercy and freedom. Father, we're never going to possibly figure you out this side of eternity. But may we run towards you, knowing that you work in our weakness. It's your name we pray. Amen.